Welcome to Jalo the Month Club. This is your host, Diana. On this episode, we travel to California as we discuss the American horror film Messiah of Evil. Released during the peak of Jalo in the early 1970s, Messiah of Evil utilizes the overall feel of a Jalo film but molded into something different. This film includes supernatural themes and emphasizes the horror of the unknown. My guest today is an art history and English major, as well as a lover of all things H.P. Lovecraft. Welcome to the podcast, Heather Levin. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I brought you on the podcast because you are the biggest Lovecraft fan that I know. I'm honored. So I've been a long time H.P. Lovecraft fan, which is not easy in the lens of 2020. I, I think everybody's pretty aware of his past. Uh, but I, like you said, I was a an English major. I studied a lot of literature. So I kind of dived into the macabre and the OG horror writers. Um, so I started with Edgar Allan Poe. And that led me to Lovecraft because um, any good Lovecraft fan should know that he was heavily inspired by Poe. So one led to the other, and I've just kind of always been in love with the genre and with his entire style of writing horror. Yeah, and Lovecraft has inspired so many films and art and books, so it's definitely a really interesting topic that I am excited to discuss with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited as well. I mean, a lot of people have conversations about him. Obviously, the elephant in the room is his racism and how it manifests in a lot of his writing and there's really no denying it I'm not going to be an apologist here right (laughs) um that's not what I came here to talk about but I do think it is worth mentioning um and acknowledging that yes he does have a history of racism and bigotry but I tend to kind of look at it from a wider lens and not try to focus it on it as you would in this day and age. So you have to remember that he was alive and well in like the 1920s. Right. So so he's problematic. This but is a century ago. We're, we acknowledged it and then now we can just move on and pretty much talk about it from an artist's right. perspective. Exactly. And you'll always hear people say, you know, you need to be able to separate the art from the artist. And a lot of people really struggle with that concept. And in my experience, anytime racism is called into question... I tend to really look at the voices of marginalized people that are affected by it. Um, I tend to take what they have to say to heart over the opinions of anyone else. You know, they're the ones that are directly affected by it. So they're the ones we should be listening to, is my opinion. So I did a lot of research and looked into a lot of writers of color and their opinion on Lovecraft currently as it is, you know, because he's constantly being brought up. Yeah, over think, and over um, again. Jordan Peele is doing a series, like a Lovecraftian series. Right. And and there are a lot of writers of color who have opinions about it and who have written about it extensively who will say that they feel the need to find themselves within Lovecraft's work. Um, they still appreciate what he's done for the genre despite the racism. There are a lot of factors you take into into play, but I'm of the opinion that if writers of color are, you know, making arguments in favor of his contributions to horror, then who am I to argue that? So I do love his writing. I don't love him as a person. (laughs) Um, I know that a lot of people struggle with making peace with that, but I've been a fan for a really long time. And, you know, a lot of 
our best artists have a really dark past or a really dark personal life. And that's what really impacts their writing and makes it so exceptional. And I feel like Lovecraft is definitely one of those people. So he shouldn't be discredited um, as a writer or for his contributions to horror just because he's a racist asshole. (laughs) Like um, nobody is saying he wasn't. I do think that it is worth noting, um, not that I'm making excuses, but he was known for writing over 100,000 letters in his lifetime, um, which is absurd. A lot of his later letters and correspondences do show some evidence that he felt some regret and guilt over his racism and bigotry in the past. Well, I would hope he would grow as a person. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's really important is like not just branding someone as you know a racist or or anything else if they've shown efforts or some measure of change so i'd like to think that maybe before he died he you know made it right yeah (laughs) but you know that's all hearsay anyway so all we have are his works which definitely suggests that he was terrified of minorities so (laughs) there's definitely no arguing that Yeah, and we'll get into that a little bit later in the episode because I know you've done some great research on it and can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. But in the meantime, have you been watching anything interesting lately or anything that you would recommend to the listeners, whether it's a movie or a show or even if you've read anything interesting lately? Well, I've got to be honest. The majority of my personal time I have spent catching up on all of the WrestleManias, which is not (laughs) relevant at all. (laughs) It's not relevant at all. So I don't know if your listeners care too much about that. About wrestling. (laughs) About wrestling. But um, I recently started watching Ragnarok, which is, I believe, a new Netflix original series that kind of follows... the lore of like Thor and Loki and the gods versus the monsters, I believe is what they call them. That's cool. Um, so that I'm only like one episode in, but okay. it's been pretty interesting. It's Norwegian. Is it like documentary style? No, or? it's definitely like a fiction story. Okay. It's a Norwegian series. Okay. Um, so all of the actors um, speak in a Norwegian. Yeah, it's like authentic accent. But I think it's like mostly just subtitles, which I love. Yeah. So love I'm that. definitely someone that loves to just read subtitles. Yeah. So yeah. it's been pretty cool so far. I'm like I said, only one episode in. Can't really give you a, a fair opinion on it yet. <laughs> the only other thing I've really been watching that's kind of relative to this is I've been getting caught up on the new Sabrina Netflix okay. original Chilling, series. I'm sorry, I promise this is not a yeah. Netflix endorsement. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, Netflix can. I'll gladly take the sponsor. I know, uh, sponsor, please. No, but I've been. Catching up on, I should say, rewatching season two. Oh, I fell um, off after a little bit halfway through the first season. Okay, and that's understandable because it is very slow. Yeah. Season two picks up a little bit. I hear season three is a little bit better, but, like, I struggle with it as well because I find the main character, Sabrina, generally unappealing. Yeah, she's the worst character she's on awful. the show. Absolutely. So it makes yeah. it really hard to care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm trying to stick with it because I'm a completionist, so I'll just obsess over it if I abandon the show at this point. No, you have to finish it. Listen, I've dedicated (laughs) 15 seasons into Supernatural. I've, I've, again, I guess I should mention that here in this segment because they've done this weird thing where in the final season they're splitting it up into halves and they're like months in between the first six episodes and I think the last six episodes. Well, I know some some shows break for winter, like holiday breaks. I could have been that. I guess Supernatural is just like a big show like that because they definitely have have like an intermittent 
mission for winter where yeah. um, they There's split like, up like the season. It's like 20 episodes, isn't it? Like 20 episodes per season? Or... They used to, it's, let me tell you, <laughs> it is a real commitment. Like, you develop a relationship with this show. 15 seasons of 20 plus episodes. So are you current on Supernatural? I am. I'm waiting what, for what the last episodes. It? It's the 15th, I believe. And that's the final? The final season. Finally. It's so, a big deal. It's Dean from Supernatural yes. has a brewery in yes. Austin mm-hmm. that when I go to Fantastic Fest every year or go to like South by Southwest, I want to go there. I'm not super into beer, but I like I want to go there because what if he's there? Apparently, he also is an amazing live performer. Okay. Like they showcased it. Right? Yes, he sings. <laughs> he does like, he does country, like pop country. I'm not kidding. They actually showcased it on the new season of Supernatural. <laughs> There's an episode where he, like, gets called up to do karaoke in a yeah. bar, and it's, like, actually Amazing. him singing, and it's perfect. Yeah. Yes. And come to find out, he does this in real life, and I would assume it's at his brewery. Right. So Yeah, they probably have shows there and stuff. It's very, you know, it's Texas, so I would very definitely country. check it out. Definitely check Love it out. That. I'm jealous. I would So definitely. you've been watching a lot of television, but I'm always the opposite. You're a film girl. Except for in January, like, I catch up on a lot of shows. Like, I watched the first season of Alter Carbon yes. in <laughs> anticipation of the second season, which has Anthony Mackie in it. So I love the world of Alter Carbon. Love it. I'm not too hot on the main actor. But he's hot. Yeah, he's hot. Yes, <laughs> but he's not the best actor, but I am excited for season two. Yeah. But other than watching Alter Carbon, I've watched After Midnight, which is a movie that just started streaming everywhere on Valentine's Day. And it okay. is a romantic comedy-ish slash horror film. Okay. It's I lo- love a rom-com. It's I love lo- a horror. Yeah. So it's, well, it's more of romantic drama- Okay. With a little bit of comedy in it by Henry Zabrowski from last wow. podcast on the okay. left. And he okay. is chewing scenery. He's loving every second of it. Wow. Um, but he's definitely the comedic relief in that one. Well, he's the comedic relief on their show, so it of makes course. sense. <laughs> but After Midnight, it's just a little like low budget film by the team that made The Battery, which came out a few years ago. Okay, it's I'm not like familiar a, with it's that. It's a low budget like zombie film. Then I watched Dogs Don't Wear Pants, which oh. is a Finnish film, a drama about a man who goes to a dominatrix. Okay. She uh, suffocates him okay. to the point of dying kinky that's kind of the tagline for but it's very deep it's a tough watch because it is about like Mm -hmm. grief and death and of course this guy gets suffocated like 20 times throughout the movie so you're like is he gonna die so to a degree sexual who knows i don't want to spoil it but yeah yeah a little bit of sexual assault in there it's a rough one and then i saw gretel and hansel Okay, that interested me, but I haven't seen it. So, so what did you think of it? So it's by Osgood Perkins, who did mm-hmm. The Black Coat's Daughter, and he is also Anthony Perkins' son. Okay, awesome. Um, so he comes from, you know, a line of talented people. I really liked it. I look at cinematography and the creative aspect of a film versus, like, right. substance. Like the feeling of Yeah, film. so not, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes I, I need a film that has a lot of substance, but sometimes I just like a film that looks good and entertains me and has great costuming and great architecture. So I really like that one, um, Gretel and Hansel. So if you can catch that while it's in the theaters, I would highly recommend that one. You know what I want to see? But it's 
being shown in very limited theaters. What? BFW. I would recommend you see that. I have not watched that it yet. That was so good. Um, so that's by Joe Bigos, who made Bliss, which right. was mentioned on our top ten episode. But BFW, I need to see it. I just have not had time. Yeah. But yeah. And it's only I would showing, like, it. right outside of DC. Like, nowhere near I me. I think it's streaming. Is it streaming? Because when Fangoria was promoting VFW, because it's a Fangoria production, mm-hmm. they said cool. an After Midnight and VFW double feature on that Valentine's would be cool. Day. Oh, that would so be cool. So I believe it's streaming. So VFW, okay. watch that. It has Stephen Lang in it and a bunch of like old school horror guys. Yeah. I fully expect it to be over the top and amazing. Gotta watch that. Listeners, yeah, so that's definitely one I want to We're gonna check watch out. that, and you should watch VFW. So let's just jump into Messiah of Evil. Yeah, let's, Ready let's for just that? grab the bull by the horns. Yeah. Was the version that you watched on Amazon Prime? Yes. And it looked like it was filmed underwater because it's the original? Yeah, it was standard definition. Yeah. Extremely hard It was to straight watch. from the 70s. It's a little tough to see on Amazon Prime. So Messiah of Evil follows a woman who travels to a remote coastal town in California to find her missing artist father. Upon arrival, she finds herself in a series of bizarre incidents and discovers that the townspeople are awaiting the return of someone they call the Dark Stranger, an evil being who returns every 100 years to cause havoc. Right. Excellent synopsis. I mean, it's very much a simple... That's it. It's a simple Cut and dry. And so when you hear that synopsis, obviously it reeks of Lovecraft. Most of the comparisons I'm going to make are between Messiah of Evil and Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Right. In in his story, it's another coastal town Mm -hmm. that gets overrun by a race of creature-like cult-like people and it's very similar themes so we'll dive into that a little bit more as we get into messiah of evil i'll be able to draw those comparisons but right off the bat it's lovecraft all over it definitely is so this one was a listener suggestion i was looking for a film that had a little bit of otherworldly vibes to it Messiah of Evil was filmed in 1971, which comes at the very beginning of Argento and the Jalo cycle. They had no clue really what Jalo was at I that like point. I think you call it Jalo Light because I feel like that's definitely what it is. Yeah, it's, it's kind of Jallo like the training Light. wheels Jalo. Yeah, so the film it has a haunting setting and views like a Jalo mixed with a low budget slasher film, but there's really only one slasher kill and it's like the first one where it's the girl and she mm-hmm. slits the guy's throat which is right. not a spoiler because it's the opening <laughs> and doesn't really matter no although it's far from a typical jalo film it does have a female protagonist and centers around her quest as she searches for her missing father and at its core it's a cross between a zombie film and a supernatural terror film jalo light i would agree with that more supernatural i would say it's also definitely a film that was kind of breaching the waters of the classic american nightmare era of film yeah um because a lot of it was very much like dreamscape and the descent into madness and like the psychology of all of the terror that was happening all around them which was also very prevalent in a lot of lovecraft's works i think that's kind of also important to note yeah i think that that had a lot to do with the setting it being a coastal town and it being like in this crazy beach house that had a bed hanging from the ceiling and murals everywhere it gave it that that dreamy feeling where you don't know i was 
I was fully expecting someone to come out of the wall. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> I kept expecting the drawings of the dead people. So the local townsfolk, I guess I should kind of just preface this with the local townsfolk are referred to as the dead people. And they're this undead cult, basically, that's waiting for the dark stranger to return after a centennial absence. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is like their centennial celebration where they expect this dark stranger to come, come into the town again. from the beach, I guess, because they're all waiting for him on the beach and doing these nightly bonfires and these moon rituals and weird pagan things, which is also very Lovecraft. Yes. All of these townspeople are described as being like very undead, zombie-like, and they're all wearing suits and like yeah, very like, straight laced, conservative right. looking clothing, which I think if you look at this in the lens of the 1970s yeah. and all the other films, they were doing like, like a Romero. Romero, exactly. Yeah. Where it's like, it's supposed to be a, a social a statement, statement on consumerism. Yeah, consumerism, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like they're all wearing suits and they're all yeah. just zombie, mindless zombies, man. And like. So there's a whole lot of that vibe. So yeah. the paintings that the crazy father did of these locals, the dead, yeah, the dead. I kept expecting them to like walk out from one of the paintings. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Fully expected it to just come out from the shadows. Like I was waiting for some sort of jump scare and then I had to constantly remind <laughs> myself that they didn't do jump scares in the seventies. Well, really? Yeah, I was expecting the same thing, but I love the set design. I thought yeah, that... it was trippy. I loved how art was used as mm -hmm. a visual motif. The camera work got a little bit crazy. I love the montage at the very end where it flashes through a whole bunch of scenes at the very, very end. Yes. I want to rewatch the film in a better quality, like, just to see that scene. I was going to say the artistry definitely mirrored... Arletti, the main character, her descent into madness. There was a direct correlation between, like, all the trippy art stuff that was happening and continuing to intensify as her descent into madness, like, went further yeah. and further and further. And the whole descent into madness theme is... That is what Lovecraft does. Yeah. And it's okay. This, it's like, this film. But you mentioned Arletti, so I should probably talk about the cast. The cast absolutely. is really small. So Arletti Long is the daughter, and she's the protagonist in this film, and she's played by Mariana Hill, who is still alive. Wow. And she was in a ton of horror movies in the 70s and the 80s. She was in this movie called The Baby, uh, which I believe is on Shudder, so watch The Baby. And then we have Royal Dano as Joseph Long, who is her dad, the missing artist father that mm -hmm. she comes to the town to look for. We have Michael Greer as Tom, who was just all around sketchy. This was weird. Why did she like him? Why does anybody like him? I don't know. Why did he have two bitches with him? I don't... Why was one of them underage? Maybe underage. I was just saying, maybe I'm underage. Like, um, why was she so sleeping in bed with him? Her name is Joy Bang. Okay. Tony with Charlie. an I. Oh, yeah. is it Tony or Charlie? I don't remember. Tony or Charlie? I wrote Tony, but it might be Charlie, because that sounds... I bet you that's right. I think Probably Charlie. Charlie with an I. <laughs> yeah, the underaged one. And that then one. <laughs> um, Anitra Ford yeah. as Laura. Laura. Laura she was sassy. Gorgeous. I liked her. She was gorgeous. She was... Her and Arletti were both gorgeous, and I 
honestly got them confused a lot because they look yeah. very similar. I agree. And I couldn't really and tell was, them apart And I was even scenes. thinking, like, maybe they should have put that girl in the, the main role because she was really good. Especially, she's like, sassy. the scene where she leaves and she's, like, in the truck with the guys. Oh. Um, when the, the not vegan scene happens and he uh, eats a rat. I was like, awful, why? Awful. At least it wasn't a cat or a dog. But come on, guys. I do love, I do love that this film has those tropes, though. Like, yeah. the weird local that might be autistic. The gas station attendant. I was going to say the gas station attendant. That's yeah. totally just a trope. Like, the creepy gas station yeah. attendant. That's such that, a horror film it trope. Had all of the good tropes. Uh, the it woman, had really good stunt jumpers, oh like, towards God. the end. That was amazing. The, they were just, the like, giving yeah. it all. That I was thought amazing. that was amazing, too. They were coming in from every angle. Yeah. But I'm glad you mentioned Laura and the scene where she was, like, running away in the truck because... When she gets into that grocery store. Oh, yeah. That is my favorite scene. Probably my second favorite scene of the movie. It's creepy. It's really creepy. So, first of all, I'm vegan. So. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of meat. Spoiler alert. There's a lot of meat. Oh, my God. A lot. Like, spoiler alert. There is a scene where all of the undead townsfolk have gathered in this grocery store after hours and are just consuming raw, raw meat. meat. Yeah. And she happens upon them because she's trying to find help. Yeah. She's trying to leave. She's trying to leave this creepy ass Tom dude who's there with an underage girl and is now trying to hit on a <laughs> third <other> girl. <laughs> which rightfully so. This is why I like Laura. She was sassy. I liked her. She had the right idea. She wanted to leave. I support that. Yeah. She made a mistake, a fatal flaw, in trying to get help from the local townsfolk. She didn't realize they were all crazy zombies. But she wanders into this grocery store and sees them all feeding ravenously on raw meat. And then, only after standing there in horror for, like, a solid minute, does she decide to try to escape. And I'm like... And she, like, jumps, she's, like, pauses when she, before she jumps the thing. I know. And I'm, like, just jump the thing! <laughs> I know, I know. So she's running from them, and there's just these kind of manic scenes where they're flashing from angle to angle of all these townsfolk, like, rushing in on her from yeah. aisle to aisle. And then, eventually, they all ascend on her and eat her alive. And it's amazing. It's a really cool scene. Great scene. One of the best scenes of the movie. Definitely one of the best deaths of the movie. I like Charlie's death in the movie theater. That's my favorite scene. And I've seen that shot before at Alamo Drafthouse. So before a movie plays at Alamo Drafthouse, they play this. It's like a warning, like, don't talk, text, or be disruptive, or this will happen. And like, it's that scene. So it's that one. So it's like, don't That's talk so during niche, the movie though. or zombies will eat you. That's such I'm a like, niche yeah, zombie movie yeah. scene. I know. It's so fun. Like, who's going to understand that reference? I, as soon I as I saw the movie theater and that girl, I was like, I have seen this scene before. That's and it was an even iconic better. scene. Because visually, it, it's very... I wouldn't say iconic, but I would say for this film, it's like the most memorable visual yeah, of the film. Yeah, it's really well done, especially when she's sitting there alone and they just slowly come in behind yeah. her. That creeps me out because yes. I go to the movies all the time. I'm like, what if that happened to me? Although all the movie theaters that I go to, well, most of them, you have to walk up the stairs. So you're coming from the bottom so I can see everyone. Yes. yes. Which now I might have to just strictly go to theaters like that. Because, Old school theaters. <laughs> yeah. Where they're just filing in behind you. And that was what was truly creepy about it is it was like slowly they just kept like filling in around her and she had and no idea until on it was each too side. late. I'm like, yes. no. And I feel like it's really 
really important to mention this about that scene. So she goes to this movie theater alone, which why would you ever do that? I've never done that. Like, I'm, I, I just know. As an underage girl in a weird town, <laughs> oh, yeah. though, like, come on. So I feel like it's really important to mention that the movie that she goes to see is Gone with the West, which is oh, a movie from the 70s. Although on the marquee it said, kiss tomorrow goodbye, which is a metaphor, like, you're gonna die. Yeah, she's about to die. It's a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. A bit of obvious foreshadowing. Very obvious. So the cool thing about the actual movie, though, um, it's like a Western, mm-hmm. and the whole point of Gone with the West, a.k.a. Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, is that it's supposed to symbolize the cult's desire to spread their new religion throughout California. Because that's, Gone with the West is all about, like, the decline of the West. That's a little thematic thing going on there. Because much like Lovecraft, this movie, Messiah of Evil, this whole cult and the Dark Stranger and the Centennial Celebration and all of that, it's all to spread this weird cult religion throughout California. Um, and ultimately, beyond. Yeah, ultimately right. in the end, that's why they let Arletti live, is so that she can spread their word. Obviously, no one believes her, and they put her in an insane asylum. But that's neither here nor there yet. But I thought it was cool, the parallels that they chose to show that film, knowing that they represented the same thing they were trying to accomplish in it this film. It was really subtle, but I love those kinds of things, move. though. I love those kinds of references, those really subtle references that have, like, a lot of impact if you're, if you can see them. Yeah, and I think this film as a whole, it leaves a lot of questions, but I like those little nods of smart writing. This movie was released in 1973, and it was co-written and directed by a married couple. Odd, right? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. Um, Williard Huck and Gloria Katz, they're a husband and wife team who directed Howard the Duck. Wouldn't have seen that coming. Wild. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And they produced screenplays for American Graffiti and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Love it. And you'll love this. Gloria Katz, she has uncredited work polishing George Lucas's Star Wars script. I do love that. Including making Princess Leia more like a real person. I love that. Yeah. A strong feminist writer. And also probably Jewish, basing. Cats. Cats, yeah. Yeah. I love a fellow Jewish feminist, (laughs) so. The tagline for this film was, no screams will be heard. Hard. That was cool. That's hard. And then there's the opening monologue where she ends with, no one will hear you scream, which I think would be a super cool sound clip, like that whole monologue, like beginning of like a really like hard song. And that's where we really show our age because no new current hardcore bands put use that. Sound they don't clips. do that. They don't do sound <laughs> clips anymore. You remember well, when bring that it was back. a huge, I would love to bring back the sound yeah. clips. So that's a get, lost let's art. Let's get your listeners, you right. know, I know some of them are in bands, take this sound clip from Messiah of Evil. You don't even have to watch the whole film, although I would recommend you do. Just watch yeah. the first few minutes, Just and she does a really long intro Hard. monologue. So tough. Yeah, and it's a woman, so, like, do Even it. harder. Um, did you want to talk a little bit about the setting of this film? Like, anything that you liked about it? Like, I personally love the 1970s retail signage and the window oh, yeah. displays. Like, I love yeah. that town. Like, it reminded me kind of of eerie. House of Wax a little Very bit. Very eerie. Yeah, love it that. was a dead town, literally. Oh, yeah. Like, it was a dead town. There was... 
nobody on the streets really except for this weird local cult of undead people and aside from that it was just which when eerie. you go to a new town wouldn't you think something is up like the Apparently moment not. that no one is on the street like i would think oh i'm gonna get murdered like this is house of wax See, i'm this just gonna have to question the judgment of all of the people i mean i could understand arletty because she was looking for her father who was last seen there that right. i understand but this weird Tom character, I feel like he was just, well, he really, was, he, he mirrors the narrator in The Shadow Over Innsmouth, who is a guy that goes to this coastal town to look into a conspiracy theory. I got real big so vibes like that, that from him. So he said that he was, like, collecting history, and that's yeah. why he was talking to the, the guy yeah. in the hotel. I never really understood that. Um, I did read that the Tom character is possibly the Dark Stranger himself. I was thinking that, too. And I then I was like, uh. I didn't. I thought that when he first was on screen, and then he kind of developed this relationship with Arletty. Yeah. And protected her. But I guess maybe he protected her to help her spread the word at the end. But even the actor himself, he was doing an interview, and he said that he would be playing the devil's son in Messiah of Evil. So he said that. That's weird. And I don't know if he was reading into it, like reading into the script, or if someone told him. I remember reading that a large portion of this movie was cut. So there could be some, like, inconsistencies. Oh my gosh, I need to watch the director's cut. Yeah. Do they even have one? I don't know. (sighs) But I did read that, like, large portions of this movie were removed. So if he said that before this movie was even in production, then it's very plausible that that never actually transpired. Or it was filmed and just cut and no longer makes sense. Because I feel Maybe like I'm they, just giving them too much credit and saying there be. had to be a reason that he was so weird and sketchy. You know, I'm yeah. hoping that maybe the the script or like the screenplay maybe explained a little bit more into like, who he real, actually was. Like, I got real like silver spoon douchey vibes from him. Like he had these two hoes with him, like just traveling and and just pursuing his interests because he was wealthy and he was born with, I think he said he owned a castle in Portugal or some shit. Um, I got these just... And then one of the girls, like, calls him out on that. Yeah. She's like, I thought you were raised yeah. in the countryside. So there's, just, there's this whole weird air of mystery about him that he was definitely trying to develop yeah. and, and instigate. And I'm sitting here just watching it thinking, like, so is this just entertainment to him? Or is there an ulterior motive? Yeah. And I don't know if maybe they were trying to go for that angle of him being the dark stranger or the dark right. stranger's son. I or like bringing... Ultimately, they were trying to sacrifice Arletty. Right. So I don't know if maybe it was his job to kind of like bring a sacrifice and he had these two girls with yeah. him. I think and then like he realized Arletty to... was the better option. I don't know. They kind of That's just true. like never really... Yeah, maybe he like picked up these girls like you know one at a time, like thinking you know he would bring he would bring one of them, and then they kind of just tagged along, and then he's like he's came across something better. I feel like the deaths of the two girls that were with him were supposed to be significant, even though it never really was hashed out. Like I feel like. This whole centennial thing of the Dark Stranger coming back was supposed to be some sort of a weird pagan ritual, yep. right? Where, like, you had to have the deaths of the two girls and then the third sacrifice of the third girl in order to bring the Dark yeah. Stranger back. Is this and I, cabin in the woods? Uh, <laughs> I mean, we have all these archetypes, was, like, 
It's the virgin. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, exactly. The, the, not jester, but like whatever. The painted the, like, whore. Slug, the whore. There you go. <laughs> yeah. That one. And then we get, well, I guess like the virgin will probably be our letty. Or the underage Maybe, girl. Uh, well, I, was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking the underage girl, but then I'm like, no, then who's our letty? Yeah, Letty is Arletty is the afflicted protagonist, okay. right? She's the one that's experiencing the madness and obviously the one that has his affections because yeah. he's pursuing it makes the other girls jealous that yeah. he's pursuing her. So maybe he saw her as the prize, as the ultimate sacrifice to the dark stranger. I don't know. They never really go into this. There are a lot of I feel like they completely <laughs> abandoned this part of the movie uh, and the story. But they definitely could have taken it, a, like, way more into the whole pagan ritual, like, weird culty vibe that was going The scene at the end on. that I wish that they lingered on a little bit longer is when she's up on the cliff and she's wearing the white dress. And they have and her the dressed hair. up as because, a sacrifice. Right, but it's... They just kind of casually mention it, like, oh, and they dressed me up in robes. Yeah, and it's just, like, flashes as a sacrifice. And, and she has this beautiful, like, teased out yeah. curly The quality throat. wasn't great, so I was like, is that her? And then after yeah. I, I looked back at some photos, I'm like, oh, that is her, but I, like, wish they would have lingered on that yeah longer. because they just casually mention oh and they were gonna offer her up as a sacrifice yeah. and it's like whoa i want to know about this yes. like so far we've only seen them on the beach around bonfire staring at the moon waiting for the blood moon yeah which is supposed to be the harbinger of the dark stranger's return right yeah and we don't really get to hash out any of the cool like pagan cult-like themes in this movie they didn't really develop them i think they really just tried to rest on the laurels of it being a zombie thrasher right. during the height of zombie and there thrasher were films. 10 deaths in this movie and some of them were off screen and they weren't really like ritualistic type deaths. No. They were someone drowns, someone gets lit on fire, which that was cool. A main character drowns. Yeah, yeah. That was the most bizarre, inexplicable yeah. death of the entire film. And, and I think the dialogue was like, and Tom drowned. And I'm like, wait something. a minute, you're joking. <laughs> you're joking. Tom was supposed to be an integral character and he just drowns in the background. Yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's why I really feel like they just didn't know what to do with his character. No. But yeah, the, and then there was a character that was lit on fire, which I thought was cool because he covered himself in paint. And then, that was cool. you know, she was told, you can't put him in the ground. You have to burn him. And it was a very... That was her father, by the way, dear yeah. listeners. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about Arletty's father, who eventually and she comes conflicted, back. And she was very conflicted, but, she, you know, in the end she did, but she had She to, was already... Which that was more of a ritualistic She death. was turning. And it should be noted that... Her father had already, quote unquote, become one of them. So her yeah. father had already gone into a full descent into madness and had turned into one of these weird dead people. And that was the really weird thing is that people went mad yeah. and became and while, zombies. While we're talking about her dad, we should mention that she was reading from his journal the entire time. And there were a lot of voiceovers of the father and her read. Or I think right. you know, she was reading the journal, but it was her father's voiceover. Wouldn't you skip to the end? Like, maybe there was a note saying I went somewhere. I think I mean, they I just get for, did it. I yeah, get the storytelling. Story, but yeah. come on. You're because looking for your dad. Skip to the good stuff. Literally, her father's journal directly parallels and mirrors her progression into madness. Her descent into yeah. madness, if you will. So, as she's reading her father's journal, she's noticing the same things that she's experiencing firsthand. And yeah. she's... One of the creepier scenes in the film is when... She starts literally vomiting like spiders and bugs. Oh, yeah. And it's like, 
is she having a nightmare? Because at that point, she's already having nightmares. Is yeah. this real or is this a nightmare? It's because she's on that bed in the middle of the room that keeps moving. Yeah. I'd have nightmares, too, if I was on a bed that never stopped shaking. And, like, apparently her father <laughs> went crazy, too. And so we find that her father went so crazy that he turned into one of these dead people. So that's what happens, is this town consumes people with evil and turns yeah. them crazy. And then once they've crossed the point of no return... They turn into these zombies and they start crying blood tears and all of this weird shit. I thought the blood tears was a really cool, iconic image. I feel like that was very jolly. It was cool. The blood yeah. tear was very jolly. Yeah, I like that. Laura is devoured by people in the grocery store. There was like a dead guy that was not her dad that was crushed by an art sculpture on the beach. And they tried tricking her into thinking that was her dad to get her to leave. But if you guys wanted to sacrifice her, why would you want her to leave? I don't know. Um, there was like a cop <laughs> there was a cop death one the cop zombie went mad and like turned yeah. on his partner yeah. yeah so it was a lot of like the the madness was spreading yeah. right you could tell that the madness was spreading to more and more people and you just yeah. get this kind of like looming doom of it spreading outside of the town and into the rest of California. Yeah. I do wish they either went one way or another like either they did very ritualistic deaths or they went hysteria. Like, just, you're, when they, I feel like they couldn't really pick which way they wanted to go. And I think they did it because, like, in the 70s, you know, zombie films were popular. So they yes. kind of went. I feel like that's that exactly what it was. I feel like they wanted to go a certain way, make it more artistic, make it more focused on, like, pagan ritual and this dark stranger and this cult and all of these ritualistic deaths. But. I think they realized that, hey, this is 1973 and zombie movies are what's making money. That's what We happened. need to make money. <laughs> so we need to edit this down to be more consumable in the current times and trends. And I think that's exactly what it got chopped and screwed into something that isn't yeah. really cohesive. Yeah. And it probably wasn't originally what they pictured. It was filmed in 1971, which, as I mentioned, it was before like the height or the beginning of Argento's Jalu films and where it like Jalu really became popular. But then it was released two years later and it was released under a few different names. Dead People, Return of the Living Dead, which that was yeah, a bit problematic. The There's yeah. some controversy with that because they were trying to latch on to like the Living Dead. Yeah, they were definitely films, trying to like, zombie ride the films. Tales they said that they weren't. That they said they weren't, but there was like a lawsuit and yeah, that was they, years ago. Ultimately, they were not allowed to use that title for obvious reasons, right? Which because, they shouldn't have. Messiah of right. Evil is perfectly fine for this Lovecraftian film, right? Um, then there was Revenge of the Screaming Dead, which they don't really scream, so I don't no. know about that. And then the Second Coming, which. No, the second like, coming makes sense because it was I the second know. coming of the Dark Stranger. But if they went with that title, I would have absolutely expected them to go more towards like the weird ritualistic pagan aspect of it instead yes. of the zombie aspect. Yeah, of it was it. definitely on the nose. So I'm glad they did Messiah yeah. Evil. And this film has been on my radar for a really long time. So I had it in my letterbox watch list for a very long time. And then when I was looking for films with this theme and this one was thrown out, I'm like, heck yeah, I'm going to watch this. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I know that it's not typical Jalo, but I appreciate what it was and I'm glad that I watched it. And although it has like a very strange convoluted plot yeah. <laughs> and a lot of questions at the end, I think that my movie watching is, you know, elevated from seeing this film. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, it's like I said, it's an hour and a half. 
you're not really losing much of your time. It kind of allows you to be more well-developed in your your experience as a viewer. So. I agree. Yeah, and then it was on that, like, 100 best horror right. movies. And I, I love looking at those lists because a lot of key horror films sometimes get overlooked. So I right. think that, you know, this was one of them. There was some decent cinematography. Like, there were some shots that were memorable, like yeah. the theater scene. Um, and the yeah. colors, there were definitely some scenes where the colors were very strong and suggestive. Oh, yeah, and definitely. I that nice art feel. Um, yeah. So, like, like when you say Jalo light, like, that's absolutely accurate. Because yeah. you get, like, a teasing of, like, classic yeah. Jalo that you love. But you see that they're, it's like, different. it's still in its inception. And they're still trying to work out the kinks. They still haven't found, like, their narrative voice, their style. So, this is really, like, a film for Jalo fans where it's, like, you watch it and you can see kind of... The inception of the style and the canon. And you see all of the growing pains in these early films where they're like struggling to hone in on a story and stick with one aspect of the plot. Like they're clearly all over the place with this. Like, is it a zombie film? Is it like a cult pagan film? Is it like ritualistic? Is it a dreamscape? Is it? And they're trying to pack all of these different really sensationalized and trendy aspects of film at the time, especially horror film, and trying to pack it all into this one B-raid movie. And I think it was because they wanted to get attention. Yeah. Because they were in their inception of their style. And I think, you know, you have to go through the growing pains of film like this to be able to appreciate, like, Suspiria and, like, classics that have stood the test of time. And I appreciate watching films like this because... Having seen a lot of Jalo films and, of course, having this podcast and watching at least one of them per month, <laughs> I do get tired of watching the same, you know, it's a black glove killer and it's a, the protagonist is a man and mm-hmm. he's, it gets repetitive after a while. So I think that yeah. sounds like this. You gotta it's, break it up a little a bit, change. revisit the early stuff to really appreciate the later stuff. The theme of this film is less Jalo but more Lovecraftian. It is American Nightmare, Dreamscape, very bizarre and otherworldly. Yeah, I mean, well, this is what Lovecraft did best. So it's very accurate to call this more of a Lovecraftian theme than a your stereotypical Jalo. The main character, the entire film basically follows her descent into madness, which was Lovecraft's main theme. Yeah. Um, and if you're not familiar with it, listeners, Lovecraftian horror is a subgenre of horror fiction that emphasizes the cosmic horror of the unknown more than gore or other elements of shock. Right. And it's named after the American author H.P. Lovecraft. Right. So it was more about describing otherwise very realistic scenes and happenings in a surreal, terrifying way um, that would be more of a psychological horror. So this is really like the inception of thriller horror or or psych horror. It's not like a slasher film. It's not a traditional zombie film. It definitely follows more in line with psychological psychological horror. And like you said, American Nightmare, um, Dreamscape, like this was all stuff that H.P. Lovecraft put on the map. Um, that's what he's known for. I loved how the opening of the film with that monologue that we love so much, um, <laughs> that monologue and that scene is mm-hmm. the ending of the film. 
Right. Did you notice that? Like, it kind of wraps yeah. around, so it makes your mind think, like, oh, this is the opening, yeah. and you're, and you're it was not eerie. quite sure. And it's, it like, creepy. very, very dreamy. You couldn't really get a clear grasp on who it was in the scene, right. or well, you, you haven't who met was her yet. Right. Letty. So, it, in the very beginning of the movie, you see... Um, a shot of Arletty in a mental institution right, like walking floor, down yeah. the hall very slowly, very obviously yeah, like out of soft, her mind. Like soft focus. Yeah, she's doing like the very creepy, clinically insane thing. Yeah. And so immediately right from the get-go, you realize, oh, this is like a psych horror. Right. This is about, you know, going crazy. And, like, that's where the real horror is, is, like, the horrors of your mind, right? Which is Lovecraft all over exactly. in spades. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've, I've mentioned it multiple times already while we've been talking, but yeah. the descent into madness. That right. is and what the, Lovecraft like the did best. The father's journal. Yeah. And then she's just seeing these, like, creepy people and just it just keeps building and building and building and even like the art in the house it's like you kind of see like one mural that's a little bit creepy but then like it's just more art that's causing um you know her to slowly go mad right exactly and and uh, like i've mentioned the shadow over in's mouth same thing same basic premise where it's a town full of creature like cult like locals and this one guy goes in there to kind of investigate the situation and ends up going mad and realizes that he's become one of them or that he always and it's like it's very similar to messiah of evil because they're like waiting for like an old god to arrive like right right absolutely so like the dark stranger the parallels between the dark stranger and cthulhu are so obvious to me as a lovecraft fan but i feel like anybody that has any kind of knowledge of the cthulhu mythos Mm -hmm that Lovecraft developed would kind of be able to recognize that. Like they go to the beach, they look at the moon and they <laughs> wait for him to come out of the ocean. And I'm the whole time I'm just thinking like, is the dark stranger Cthulhu? Yeah. This? Like yeah. what's going on? They described the dark stranger as like a sinister preacher. Yeah. And that they were just like waiting to come out of the sea, which that's I, cool. So it was weird to me that, like, I feel like this movie just really was grasping at every single, pioneer, like, trend or sensational thing. <laughs> like, yeah, and the fact that um, the Dark Stranger was supposed to be, like, a survivor of the Donner Party. Mm-hmm. And, like, how many, like, sensationalized, trendy yeah. things that were going on during the times can you try to attach to one movie? Yep. It was weird, but there it's it, the whole thing was supposed to be about like spreading this weird evil religion throughout the West, which I thought was just a strange plot yeah. because they like never developed it. And the consumerism. They like, never developed uh, that, which was so weird. I would have rather like I would have rather they ditched the whole zombie thing and like made it more of like a weird pagan cult. Yeah, that would have been cool to me. <laughs> So I know that you noticed a few comparisons between Lovecraft's work and Messiah of Evil. Did you want to expand upon some of the comparisons that you saw? Yeah, I absolutely can. Um, So there were quite a few. Um, So anybody that's not really familiar with Lovecraft's style of writing, the man was very conflicted, agoraphobic. Both of his parents were committed to a mental institution where they both died there. Mm. Um, He had a nervous breakdown at 18. So mental illness, um, madness, hereditary insanity, those were all very heavy themes in all of Lovecraft's work. So I think that's the very obvious comparison here, being that 
Messiah of Evil was very much fueled by the premise that Arletti and her father's descent into madness caused them to almost become one of the dead people. Yeah. Um, so that directly reflects in Lovecraft's uh, Shadow Over In's Mouth, which I've referenced multiple times yeah. already. Lovecraft himself really was the pioneer of toying with psychosis and mental illness and night terrors and psychology as a way to fuel horror in people, a very real horror um, that wasn't really being explored. You have to remember Lovecraft was writing about this stuff in the 20s. It just wasn't done. And that's why his work is so iconic and has inspired and affected the genre as deeply as it has. Yeah, no one was doing it. No like one he was, was doing it. Yeah. Like he was the only one that was thinking of these things. And, you know, his mythos and his style of writing has, like you said, impacted the entire genre. It sent shockwaves out for now centuries later. It's it's a century later. Yeah. That we're still I mean, seeing they the have impact like of his color work. out of space that just came out with Nicolas Cage. Like Right. That's H.P. Lovecraft. I mean, They're Stephen King wouldn't it. have a career if it yeah. wasn't for H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft. Like, it's huge. So I feel like it's really important that this movie paid that kind of homage to Lovecraft, mm-hmm. whether intentional or not. Yeah. I have to believe that it was intentional. Yeah. I don't it's think that you could mirror Lovecraft's style as much as you did without directly trying to pay a nod to him. Um but absolutely, uh, and and you have to think at this time, it would have only been 50 years after Lovecraft. Yeah. Not even. So Lovecraft and his work would have still been very popularized at this point. So it definitely could have been a huge inspiration for these more B-rated art house films where they're trying to do something a little different. Maybe experimenting with doing something definitely. a little different. Well, in horror films, once you get to like the 70s, you get into the inception of slasher films and... When you're wanting to put a different spin on like a slasher film, you do something like this. Yeah. Or a zombie film. You do and something I feel like, like the this. 70s were just a time where people were definitely experimenting more with like psychology <laughs> and psychedelics and like really like mind trips and things like that. And that's what this film really kind of accomplished was that whole mind trip of going crazy. And is it real or is it a dream? And having to question your reality and all of the horror and the existential horror that comes with that, which is so classically Lovecraftian that you really have to appreciate that part of this film. And as a Lovecraft fan, that's why I can't say that this film was bad. Um, I know a lot of people will watch this film and be like, wow, that was a chore to watch. Yeah. Like, especially Jalo films will watch this and be like, still a little bit of a chore to watch. Not exactly yeah. what I had in mind for my, my Jalo. My gut you know? reaction when I first watched this film, I had a bit of that reaction. I was just like, mm-hmm. wow, like what redeeming qualities? <laughs> like, I, I just walked away from him like, oh man, that was like an... It didn't help, again, that the picture wasn't great on it. Yeah, but, you really keep coming but back it, to that. It's it just like, oh, that really... Because I couldn't... I'm sure there... Because I'm such a fan of... It's so of, distracting. I'm, I'm such a fan of, like, cinematography and yeah. costuming and it really set design. That, like, if I can't see it, that's one of the things I love. So if I can't see it, then it kind of yeah. affects my I think it's probably because experience. you, like, rest on the cinematography when a film's storytelling is bad. You're exactly. like, at least it looked good. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. That's, 
that's it right and there. And you're like, damn, I don't even have that excuse. Yeah, because I couldn't see it. it. It took me a couple of hours. You know, the next morning I was like, wow, that really was like a staple for this like paranoid female protagonist. Yeah. And then like I really, I looked into like the Lovecraft side of it and the cinematography side of it. Like once I could see a little bit, you know, more of right. like the art, I just really like appreciated it a lot more. Yeah, I mean, I think that... When you have the ability to see all of the underlying themes and influences, it it definitely allows you to appreciate it on a deeper level as opposed to it just being like, this is an hour and a half trendy movie where they were, they still had their training wheels on and they didn't quite develop their style yet. Like, appreciate it for what it is, for what it tried to accomplish at least recognize or maybe give them more credit than they deserve. I don't know. I don't know which yet, but um, at least try to appreciate it for what you can. And so for me, being able to pull all of the bits of Lovecraft out of this and, and be able to appreciate it in that regard was worth watching. I agree. All right. So while we are on the theme, do you have any flavors of the month? So that could be Books, movies, music, anything that you think would be a good pairing with this film that you would suggest to the listeners? I think the obvious suggestion is to read Lovecraft. If you like the American Nightmare aspect of this, the dreamscape, the descent into madness, if that part of this film interests you, definitely read Lovecraft. Read The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Read any number of his stories within the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah, like it's just all go to, about go to your library. Yeah, it's, they'll have them all. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> no, they really will because yeah. you can't find them anywhere for purchase. Yeah. Like it's become have the classics. It's become so coveted that like you cannot find any H.P. Lovecraft anywhere. Luckily, I have you know a full collection. Yeah, you're a fan, of course. <laughs> Of course. I mean, I, I do have Cthulhu and the Necronomicon tattooed on my left no arm. No big deal. So. It's not a commitment I mean, or I kind of have to be about it at this point. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, obviously, that's a great suggestion, and it's totally on theme, and I think that it's something that any horror fan should explore. I do have four suggestions, and mine are... Just four. Just four. <laughs> just four. No I big mean, deal. Right. I mean, with the theme, I could have been all over the place, but I tried she to go... prepared. I went with a newer film, an older film, a short film, and a podcast. Wow. Okay. So, Let's I'll go it. in that order. I'm going to recommend The Endless from 2017, which is a film by okay. Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. They made the film Spring Resolution. They have a new film starring Anthony Mackie. Shout out to Anthony Mackie because this is like the fifth yeah, time I'm mentioning him. On him. Episode. Um, we love him on this episode. Um, he's in this film called Synchronic, which is, should be coming out like any day now. So it is an American science fiction horror film about these two brothers that were in a cult. They left and then they get a videotape, this mysterious videotape that makes them go back to the cult. And it has very bizarre incidents and very like Lovecraftian. I believe it's on Netflix. I could be mistaken, but just search The Endless wherever you stream. I'm down so I can check it out. The Endless and that's a cool one. And then I have John Carpenter's The Fog from 1980. Oh, of course. The town just yeah. felt very similar. Absolutely. Um, Fear of just, the unknown. Exactly. Yeah. So it gave me those vibes. And that's mm-hmm. a classic. You have to see that. John Absolutely. Carpenter's The Fog. My third recommendation is from 2016. There's this anthology horror film called Holidays. The overall film 
is not great. So mm. you can fast forward to my suggestion, which is the Father's Day segment. Okay. And it stars Jocelyn Donahue, who was in House of the Devil. I don't really know how to explain it, but it's, like, very heartfelt. Very, like, slow burn journey. We love a slow burn. Jocelyn Donahue plays this daughter who receives a cassette tape and a cassette player in the mail with recordings from her father, her deceased father. And she listens to them. And they're instructions of her to go to this abandoned town. It's, Mm. like, um... Salton Sea. Hmm. Like the Salton Sea. It's like a town in the Salton Sea and she's walking through it. It's just really pulled at my heartstrings. Okay. Um, But it is a horror short. So it's from Holidays 2016, which I think is on Netflix again. So this film is going to confuse me emotionally. Um, Is that what you're saying? (laughs) So Holidays is an anthology film that has different segments of different holidays throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And the Father's Day one that I just suggested and the New Year's Eve segment are the best ones. Okay. So watch those two. Just those. I would highly recommend. I mean, if you like torture, watch the Kevin Smith one because that one is the worst one and it's Halloween. Oh, man. Like, how do you ruin Halloween? You had so much potential squandered. That's so bad. I did think of another suggestion. Although I feel like if you haven't watched this, why are you listening to this <laughs> podcast? But if you want the ultimate classic descent into madness experience, The Shining. Yeah. Or Jacob's Ladder. Yeah. You have to watch The Shining. Is yeah. there a better descent into madness? Yeah. I don't think so. That's a good pairing. Yeah. Definitely. And then my last one, you touched upon this briefly a few minutes ago when you mentioned the Donner Party. Oh. I am recommending last podcast on the left, episodes 331 and 332 on the Donner Party. And this is the second plug we've done for... Oh, Henry Zabrowski! <laughs> the last podcast on the left. I swear uh, we are not being sponsored. No. We're not sponsored by Netflix. They don't Anthony know Mackie who we are. Henry Zabrowski. <laughs> no. They've never acknowledged our existence, but, yeah. you know, we appreciate a yeah. good podcast on... History. Yeah, and, on a subject we yeah. enjoy. Yeah, so if you were at all interested in this dark stranger and those pioneer flashbacks. And cult shit in general. Yep, listen to the Donner (laughs) Party episodes of Last Podcast on the Left, 331 and 332. Speaking of... And they're now only on Spotify, so you have to have Spotify. Oh, wow. Yeah, they don't Mm. stream on anything else. They just started that last week. Wow. Speaking of the Donner Party, though, not to go off on, like, a weird tangent, but... Did you watch the recent Tarantino film? Yes. Okay. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Yes. With Brad Pitt and Leo. Yeah. Brad Pitt was the best part of that movie. I feel like he he honestly, once he got out of the whole heartthrob era of his acting, he really just like shined. He's a fantastic actor that just happens to be incredibly good looking. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) Like... Talented all over. Physically, um, acting-wise, I'm sure he's an impressive lover and husband. I would love to know. I (laughs) I know. Um, I I believe that was also about... I never saw it. I saw so many mixed reviews. I meant to ask you what you felt about it, because that's also very much into the whole, like, trend of the cult thing. All right. So... We have a deep sigh, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. So... I will admit that I didn't love it. I am usually a fan of Tarantino's work. It's I hit love... or miss for me these days, to be honest. It really is. Right. I mean, now it is. It's to the point yeah. where he 
is trying so hard to make something amazing and then it sometimes is a letdown where if he would just try to make something very good Some it would be would say how do you improve upon perfection exactly because he's made perfect films yeah. so many times and he had that really long streak and it's like, how do you live up to that? So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a movie that a lot of people really loved and it was on their top 10 list. It was not on mine because I really only loved the last 30 minutes. And Brad Pitt. <laughs> he was amazing. I mean, he was amazing. He deserves all of the words and everything. But the last 30 minutes of that film, I would recommend you watch it, obviously. Yeah. Well, you have to watch all the films. Yeah. Completionist. Yeah. 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 Um, but the last 30 minutes of that were crazy good. Midsummer is another film that people okay. loved, and I loved. The, you didn't like. So I much. loved the first thirty minutes of but that. But you loved the cinematography. Cinematography was good, but it was too repetitive from Hereditary. Yeah, but it definitely <laughs> was one of those. It was definitely and one Florence of those. Florence Pugh was amazing. So you get these like amazing performances in these movies where I only Listen, like the beginning you just or only have, like, like a weird solidarity with your fellow upturned nose sister yeah. kind oh, of I thing love going on. Florence I mean, she's adorable, nose. right? She's adorable. <laughs> she was very relatable. Anxiety is huge these yeah. days, so it's very yeah. relatable content. We get it. But and I feel like the cinematography definitely. First of all, I liked it. I loved that brand. I was of just expecting horror. so much from it, though. And it, you have high expectations because you were yeah. coming off Hereditary. Yeah, it's also a twenty-four. So yeah. it's okay. Lighthouse but was my favorite film of the year. You have to admit it so. had some of the best shots, like the triangular yellow building. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I mean, the, the shots, the landscapes, beautiful. like the costumes yeah. were amazing. So even when the film itself fell short, you could just look at it and be entertained. Definitely. Speaking of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the last 30 minutes, the last act of that film includes an actress named Lorenza Izzo. Okay. Which I don't know if you've seen anything that she's been in, but she was in Eli Roth's The Green Inferno. I've seen that. Knock Knock with Keanu mm-hmm. Reeves. And she's somewhat of a horror staple. She's a beautiful Chilean actress. She is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. As Leonardo DiCaprio's girlfriend. She plays um, some fictitious actress in that film. Right. But she is like the best part of that movie. And she's just a goddess. And she's also <laughs> in... The New Year's Eve segment of Holidays. Oh, we come full circle. Full circle. Full circle. Well, on that note, is there anything that you wanted to promote or plug? Um, where can the listeners find you? Um, I generally tend to stay out of media in general as far as putting out my creative genius. Um, I do really nerdy things like... Um, ramen yeah I (laughs) well I'm vegan (laughs) yes as I've mentioned I I try not to put that at the forefront of my personality but um, it's it's a lifestyle and also a diet but I I tend to be a lot more extreme than most people because I do keto as well um, for medical reasons so yeah it's a very strict disciplined diet but I I like to really push myself and And test great for people with 
It's it's really honestly it's it's great for a lot of things. Uh, one of my um, medical physicians actually suggested it to me like almost six years ago to help treat a condition that birth control was not yeah helping. Yeah, it's weird because it's like... And you'll feel better. It was never intended to be like a weight loss diet or a fad diet. It was originally developed in the 70s to treat like epilepsy and diabetes. It just happened to be that rapid weight loss was a result of it as well. So I do vegan keto now, which is possible. It's just very restrictive. (laughs) So you have to be very disciplined. But like I said, like I kind of get off on that. (laughs) I like testing the limits of my discipline and like sticking to a routine and like meal prep and being very, I'm a Virgo if you guys care at all about astrology. (laughs) So it's definitely my personality to to just over plan and structure everything to all hell. Um, it, it's something that has been proven to help with cell effigy and cell regrowth. They're testing it in Alzheimer's patients and like wow. with a lot of different mental illnesses that focus more on like psychosis and hallucinations and things like that. Um, and it's been proven really Full well over this phone. I know, right? Mental <laughs> illness. It's it's really though. It's been like all of the tests have proven like tremendous benefits to combining intermittent fasting with a high fat, low carb diet. A lot of patients who have like very serious mental illness, like schizophrenia, where they're experiencing psychosis and hallucinations on a regular basis have noticed like a complete reversal of symptoms without medication just from diet alone. So I'll continue to do it. But if anybody is interested in veganism or, you know, ketosis, I do have like a dedicated Instagram account where I will post like my meals and um, like snacks and just like little things. Yeah, like sometimes and you'll try out a product and if it's not good, like you'll. I'm really trying to get those it. sponsorships. Yeah, <laughs> I'm you'll really rate trying it. to get those sponsorships because listen, keto is so popular now that all of the snacks are so expensive. Yeah. I really want to get a sponsorship, but it's, <laughs> it's at that vegan keto life on Instagram if okay. you want to follow it. Yeah, I'll plug that. And then if you get a bunch of followers from this, then that'll help <laughs> yeah. you maybe get a Maybe sponsor. get that sponsorship so um, I can get free snacks. But I will note your handle in the episode description so everyone will have super easy access. Is there anything else that you wanted to promote while you're here? Um, The only other cool thing I do is my boyfriend and I since the beginning of our relationship have just kind of been obsessed with ramen. So ramen um, noodles, guys. Yeah. Ramen, like traditional Japanese ramen. I of course get vegan ramen. He prefers a traditional tonkatsu. Yeah. Um, but we have made it like our life's work. (laughs) (laughs) We've made it our life's work to like check out all of the ramen spots in the Northeast basically. And you rate them. We rate them. Like I have a hashtag, uh, never ending ramen quest on Instagram. I've thought about making it a blog because like apparently it's a sensation on Reddit. Um, I don't post about it, but my boyfriend posts about our endeavors on Reddit and it's pretty well received. So who knows? Maybe a blog would be something worth doing if I had the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's cool. We, we basically just do our research. We have this list of ramen spots that we go to. I think in total we've hit over 20 in like six months in the year 2020 alone. 
which has been less than two months, we've hit like eight new spots. So, and I'm always posting photos of it. So if you're interested in vegan food yeah. and you want to know where or to get the vegan ramen. if you have any suggestions of yeah, amazing definitely. ramen places, just yeah, send them over. Yeah, you can always and- follow me and make suggestions and we'll always add it to the list. You know, we don't call it the never ending ramen quest for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually we're going to end up in Japan, but yeah. that's the only other cool thing I do. And then... Um, aside from that, uh, just to plug my friend's podcast, um, The Mandate, which is affiliated with Cinepunks. We I've love been a- Cinepunks. Yeah, we we're love friends. Cinepunks. They're friend- we're friends of their podcast. They're friends of our podcast. Yeah, and it's always cool to support like local, small podcasts, um, especially within the same kind of realm. I've been a guest on that podcast with him twice now. Um, so if you are interested in listening to me ramble about movies... Um, you can check out the episodes I've been a guest on. Um, one was The Meg, yeah. which was ridiculous. And it's a cool concept. Like, you guys speak about a film and, like, what your opinion is before you watch it. Right. And then you film, and then you record so, immediately after yeah. with what your reaction so is. So, in stark contrast to this podcast, there is absolutely no preparation. Yeah, I give, <laughs> I, I give my guests some time to prepare for right. the podcast. Mandate, there's no There's no room. preparation. It's, the entire basis of it is basically just, like, a shoot from the hip improv kind of podcast about whatever is currently out in theaters. Big fans of Cinepunks and Liam of Cinepunks is a big fan of Jello of the Month Club and Which is awesome. Vice versa. Like it's all love within Also this. in the hardcore scene. Yeah. Our love within like hardcore scene North slash horror, horror scene <laughs> slash podcasters. There's a lot of overlap. You'd be surprised. There is. There is. We love our hobbies. You can follow Jalo of the Month Club on Twitter and Instagram at Jalo Club. You can follow myself, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Diana NK. Our logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. You can find Matt's Etsy shop at Retirement Funds. Our theme music is by musician Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at dreamdivision.bandcamp.com. I would love it if you went on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you listen to this podcast, and leave Jello of the Month Club a glowing review. It helps promote the podcast and get it out there to more Jalo fans, more horror fans. Spreads the word of this little podcast. And shout out to Diana for getting a little feature on the Fangoria. Oh yeah, so Jalo the Month Club was on Fangoria.com a few weeks ago, which was super cool. Well, Heather, thank you so much for doing such thoughtful research. I know that this is something that you're super passionate about, and I think that it was such a delightful conversation. And you oh, know. absolutely, it's always a good time. Um, I mean, it's we have conversations like this that aren't being recorded. Like, yeah, I feel all like time. this is just like another casual conversation between friends. So it was it was really fun. I'm glad you had me on. And as always, I am your host Diana, and I am your guest Heather Levin. Thanks for listening to Jalo the Month Club. Ciao.